Radiomano Papachango. Welcome to another episode of Tangentially Speaking. Uh, this one's with a guy named Ian McKenzie. He's a filmmaker, uh, writer, man about town, and he has spent a lot of time at a place called Tamara in Portugal and made a film called The Village of Lovers about this place and, and the people who are um, trying to establish uh, a new way of living, which you know, according to some of my work, is also a very old way of living, uh, which is a way of interacting with other people that is a lot more in alignment with the way hunter-gatherer groups interact with one another uh, within the group, um, sexually, in terms of raising children, in terms of sharing resources, in terms of relating to the earth beneath their feet and the animals and um, the water and the wind and the sky and all the rest of it. It's a fascinating film. Uh, I'll put the trailer in the show notes. You'll be able to see it there. Um, but if you don't consult the show notes, just check out The Village of Lovers, Ian McKenzie, uh, and you will find you'll find the information thevillageoflovers.com is a good place to find out about it. Uh, it's being released very soon. If you go there and uh, sign up, they'll shoot you an email when it's available. Uh, right now, the trailer's on YouTube. Anyway, really interesting film. I saw the whole thing. Anya and I and Nadia showed it uh, last year in Montana at the Sex at Dawn retreat. By the way, hey, I guess I should announce the Sex at Dawn retreat is is uh, set up. It's happening uh, this June. Let me pull up my calendar and I'll tell you exactly. I think I already mentioned it, but um, June Budokan retreat, June 21st through, I think, 25th. I, I think the 21st and 26th are travel days. Not sure. Anyway, um, yeah, you should check it out. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. It, it, last summer was a fantastic experience. So if you've got time in late June, um, you can check that out. Budokan, B-U-D-O-K-O-N. Retreat, Sex at Dawn Retreat. It's going to be maximum 20 people. Some people are already signing up. I think uh, we announced it on Instagram or some social media. Um. Yeah, I saw a guy from France has signed up. He's planning to fly out from Paris. We had people last year from Brazil and Germany and uh, Alaska, all over the place. So I know it's a uh, it's you know expensive, and who's got a a week to fly to Montana? But if you do, if you have the money and the time and the interest, please consider joining us. It's um, a really fascinating experience. Uh, anyway, so what else do I have to tell you about uh, before I get into this? Rinpoche, uh, last episode with Jim Rinpoche, also known as uh, Jerry Gardner. Uh, it turns out after that was released, a friend of his contacted me and said, hey, uh, you know, I recorded 15 hours of conversations with uh, Rinpoche, and uh, it's being released soon. I wonder if you would mind mentioning it to your audience. So not at all. So they just released the first episode, uh, which is entitled, What is Your Dream? As I said, it's going to be a 10-episode series. I think they're dropping an episode a week or so. And you can find that at ncpodcast.com. And um, it's called My Mornings with Rinpoche. So that's a, a podcasting network. 
And uh, so you just go to ncpodcast.com and look for My Mornings with Arun Poche and you can hear more from him. I got some really beautiful emails from people um, talking about how that episode resonated for them and some of the things that that they were going through. Um, you know, one guy was in the hospital. His daughter had some emergency surgery. They took her in for something minor. And next thing you know, it's like, oh, my God, she needs surgery right now. And uh, so needless to say, his life was going through a tailspin. And just for some distraction, he put on the podcast and it happened to be with the Rinpoche and, um, and he wrote us a, a beautiful, a beautiful message, just talking about some of the comfort that he found in that, um, unexpectedly. And as I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. It, it just amazes me, you know, this, this strange relationship we have where I'm sitting here at my cluttered desk with a, you know, my old beat up Yeti with some green tea in it. And, a computer screen in front of me and a bunch of post-it notes and, you know, just the most pedestrian, normal, unmysterious kind of setting you can imagine. But then somehow somebody's listening to my voice right now who's sitting in a hospital hoping their daughter survives the surgery that they didn't know she needed two days ago. Or somebody is in Antarctica listening to this while the blizzard howls around them. Or somebody's on a sailboat in the South Pacific. Or somebody's sitting on a tractor plowing a field. Or somebody's, uh, you know, under a car changing the oil. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, to somehow be connected with so many worlds that I can't see any of them sitting here at this cluttered desk. Um, and it's such a fucking honor. It's so beautiful, so mysterious, so lovely and enriching. So thank you for that. Um, and, oh, I guess I'll mention this later. I'm doing... I've been encouraged to to keep doing these, you know, free version, paid version of the podcast. Um, as much as I hate it, uh, uh, this is paying the bills right now. So, <clears throat> you know, if I write another book and get a big fat advance or something, maybe I'll just drop all that. But in the meantime, uh, I am doing that. It does work. I appreciate those of you who sign up when you're you know, nudged toward it. So I'll keep nudging, I guess. Um, anyway, there are some things I'm going to announce. I'm doing giveaways. I've got some stuff here that I I don't need. And uh, I thought, well, there's a free box in Crestone where we leave a lot of stuff. Um, but some of this stuff, I thought, well, why don't I just offer it to to podcast listeners? I've done that before with podcasting gear, you know, that I outgrew or or whatever. Most of it's electronic stuff. So I've got some, some things I'm going to be giving away, but I'll, I'll do that with the, uh, in the paid version. How's that for a nudge? <laughs> you just got nudged, man. All right. What else? That's it. Mornings with Rinpoche. I wanted to talk to you about, I, I've got so many podcasts in the can right now. It's kind of embarrassing. I, I try to have, you know, two, three recordings, um, ready to go so that if I get super busy and don't have a chance to record or just don't run into anybody or, or, you know, scheduling, whatever, I'm doing other things. Uh, so I won't run out, but right now I've got like, I don't know, a dozen or something. Cause I just kept running into these really interesting people and, and recording and things came up. And so, uh, if, if you're listening to this and I've recorded a podcast with you and I haven't posted it yet, uh, please accept my apologies. It does not, it's not an indication that you're not fascinating and, and I didn't love the episode. Uh, it's just, I'm, I'm really backed up right now. So, um, and then to make it worse, I, I get these ideas for relationship Roma. I've got, I, I want to do, I would do it today, except I'm going on a road trip tomorrow. So, I don't have a bunch of time, but, uh, I've been getting a lot of, 
a lot of people who wanted to consult me about relationship issues and, and, um, and I, I see a lot of the same stuff keeps coming up. So I thought maybe I should just sit down and, and do a relationship aroma. Not as, you know, not as a psychologist or, you know, in any kind of, um, clinical capacity, more just like a guy who's been around and been in a lot of, I guess I've been in a lot of casual relationships. I've been in, you know, four or five serious relationships, I would say. And I think I've learned a lot from them. Uh, I've been paying attention. So, you know, it's one of the frustrations in life that you kind of figure shit out uh, toward the end of the game. You start to, you know, realize how to play it. And there are things I wish I had known when I was younger. So I guess those are the things that I'll talk about in the relationship aroma that will be coming soon. Um, all right. Great. I think that's it. Why don't I just jump into this episode with Ian McKenzie? Thank you for listening. Thanks for uh, indulging me. All right. I'm here with Ian McKenzie. Ian, welcome. Mm, thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Are you Canadian? Indeed. Born okay. and raised. Yeah, because Ian McKenzie's a real Canadian name. <laughs> well, you got some Scottish in there and also Irish on my side. So yeah. Definitely hails from that high side of the world. Yeah. Cool. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Vancouver and just outside in the suburbs. Oh, nice. You know? and, and like many on the West Coast, particularly Vancouver, when you say that, they're like, Really? You're from here? You know, you grew up here. So a lot of folks from Canada tend to migrate, you know, west. They feel that mysterious call of the the ocean and the rest so um but yeah grew up there vancouver is a lovely city i lived there for two years um and when i first got there i thought this is what cities could be like in the future if humans got their shit together like Mm. it was just it, it seemed so well designed and lots of green space and you know lots of sort of uh pedestrian um uh you know focus on on places to walk along the water's edge and Mm. over the bridges and you know in the states everything seems to be designed for cars and or corporate interests and not for Mm. quality of life um and i really appreciated that well the word got out then because i don't know when this was but it's now you know it's morphed quite a bit to it's one of the most expensive cities in the world now and uh, you know lots of towers of glass and the rest so definitely you know it's uh it's that fine to try, try to find that balance you know livable and yeah um you know then you get everybody interested so a lot of that hong kong money came in and uh and bought up those towers of glass that sit empty now yeah it's It's a tough yeah it's a tough situation for a lot of folks yeah i mean i personally moved out of vancouver yeah about uh, 10 years ago uh i moved to the islands off the coast there salt spring island is one you know gem Mm. which um uh, I spent about yeah eight years there, and then now I'm on Vancouver Island, uh, you know, sort of mid-island, a place called the Couch and Valley, which is you know a gorgeous, uh, just yeah, a lot of a lot of things here, but also not that frenetic pace of the big city. I went up uh, and visited a friend on Cortez Island a few times. Mm-hmm. That was that was really nice. Those islands are beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. anyway, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're, we're here to talk about what masculinity relationships, um, and this place Tamara in Portugal, which mm-hmm. I have never visited, believe it or not. I, I keep getting invited and it never seemed, I was never, I wasn't in Spain. I'd left Spain by the time, uh, you know, sex at dawn sort of filtered over there and, uh, so it was a much longer trip. If I had been in Barcelona, we would have gone to visit, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, anyway, let, let me just start by thanking you for the film, uh, mm. which is a really beautiful piece of work. Um, not just the way it's shot and edited and put together, but um, I, I think it's a very... Um, kind of mature and thoughtful examination of issues that 
all too often get sensationalized or infantilized or, you know, framed in some kind of silly uh, way that reduces them. And and so I appreciated the sort of adult uh, intelligence behind that film. Hmm. Thank you. Well, it, it it's the culmination of nine years now of efforts. So I'm, I'm hoping all that paid off and it seems like it did. Uh, you know, when I first was approached by Tamara, I, you know, I've been a filmmaker for about 15 or so years now. And I actually got into film because I felt like it would be the fastest way to shift consciousness as quickly as possible. You know, that's, that's sort of my, my naked intention there, because like many, you know, I also saw that we were sort of collectively on a trajectory off the cliff. And I thought, you know, what's, what's something I can do. And then the power of story, the power of cinema as this unique combination of, you know, music and ideas and visuals felt like there's something that drew me there. And then I basically, so I felt like I began kind of swimming upstream of this question, like what happened? How did we get here? And uh, I worked on a film called Occupy Love with uh, director Velko Ripper. He's a well-known Canadian uh, director. The name actually comes because he used to be in a punk band, but he kept it for his uh, filmmaking career. Uh, and he was working on a three, three film series that captured the zeitgeist of the times from, 20, uh, from 2000 to 2012. And so he had three films. Two had already come out at that point. Uh, the first was Scared Sacred. And he went to ground zeros of the world and looked at like what's, you know, what happened in the aftermath of whether it's like Bhopal, India, or, you know, the Cambodian genocide, or even New York after 9-11. He was like, what, you know, what was in the aftermath? And it was, in some ways, an, interestingly, a very hopeful film uh, when he looked at what, what transpired after. And won a bunch of awards in Canada and, you know, did well. And then he followed it up with one called Fierce Light, When Spirit Meets Action. And that was about uh, sort of this the sense of this Gandhian soul force, like uh, essentially bringing together meditation and spirituality, but with, you know, activism and political dimension. And that was a really beautiful film, um, centered a lot on this uh, Canticle farm, I believe it was called, in, in, or maybe it was a Canticle, but it was in Oakland, I believe, that was being threatened by developers. And so that was the sort of central storyline and then all these other branches. And then the last question he asked was, what if we all became spiritual activists, right? What if we all channeled Gandhi and soul force? And uh, he was already working on this film when I met him and said, I got to work with you because I felt like he was really tracking, you know, he's much on that thread. And then he's like, okay, well, come join me. And our first shoot was actually uh, shoot, uh, over the tar sands in Alberta, mm. which I'm sure you've heard of by now. Yeah, but this was back in like 2010 and they were still kind of under the radar, of, you know, mass perception. And so that was our first shoot to be like, what, you know, this is what we've done to, uh, to, to satisfy this energy hunger, right. Uh, that, that this economic system was attempting to, to meet. Um, and then from there, you know, he was sort of tracking other spiritual teachers that also were on this sort of the next Buddha will be Sangha kind of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh understanding. And, and then the Occupy movement broke onto the scene, right. In New York, and he was living in Brooklyn. So he just started filming. He's like, what, you know, this seems interesting, you know, and, after a while, of course, it started to catch fire. I actually went out there um, as well to join him. And that ended up, the way we'd say it is the film that he was working on got occupied and it became uh, Occupy Love. And it really, again, unified that question. You know, here's an example of what felt like this impulse of, of the collective coming through. And it was one author, uh, Rolling Stone, I think he said um, something like, this was the first time people had gone on strike from their own culture. You know, something like that. It was actually a really great, framing of it because it was this on the one hand we don't want what we have but we aren't exactly sure what we want instead but there's this willingness to be in the question you know that was much criticized and derided by outsiders saying you know a bunch of hippies they don't know what they want and yet at the same time there was really beautiful longing for possibility right for like an imaginal future charles eisenstein he coined that phrase the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible you know as a way to to capture that so so I worked on that film. Uh, it came out. It was, a, it was sort of the first year the Occupy movement captured along with these main themes. And somewhere in there, Tamara reached out and they said, hey, we're doing interesting things with love. Would you like to come visit? And so, you know, this is 2012-ish. And I was like, you know, interesting. Um, at the time, my marriage was disintegrating, uh, largely because of a conversation that we had. Also, you know, you are my podcast. And I think we touched a little bit on this around... Um, you know, just challenges in the relationship, uh, challenges with getting uh, pregnant. Like there was, you know, like we had to go through this whole period of of the IVF and 
you know, we went through that whole medical thing because it wasn't an easy thing to try to, to try to procreate <laughs> within our uh, relationship. And eventually it didn't happen. And that opened me up to possibilities of, okay, what are we going to do next? You know, if we're not going to have kids, maybe there's some other, you know, horizons we could explore. Uh, I've, I've been a burning man a couple of times at that point, you know, shifted a lot of what I thought possible in relationship, but ultimately that uh, there was just catastrophic disconnects, you know, within the relationship that, that grew. And then eventually in 2013, we separated spectacular story. Actually, I wrote an essay about it and it ended up being the most read thing I've ever written. Uh, it's called love will be the death of us that, uh, that essay. And, uh, so we, we ended and then, uh, I, you know, once again, the Tamara invitation was hovering and I was like, well, maybe it's time, maybe it's time to go see what they might have to teach me around love and partnership. And just, you know, how did we get here? Where can people read love is the death of us or love will be the death of us? They can go to my website. Yeah. Uh, ianmack.com. You know, I can send you a link in the show notes if you like. Sure. Um, I, I will say, I will say up front, it's, it's the most vulnerably like heart raw thing I've ever written. It's quite bracingly vulnerable. Um, and at the same time, as much as I got a, a lot of like positive re responses from folks, they were like, wow, thank you for writing this. Like, you know, we just got married. I, I'm so glad I read this. Like just somebody's honest with actually what it takes and how to be with the death of a relationship. Like really that's the spirit of it. But it also opened me up to heavy criticism. I actually left Twitter from that moment because of the amount of criticism I was getting from people kind of misconstruing, calling me a you know raging narcissist and I'm a terrible burner. And uh, I had somebody, I had somebody like uh, take a snapshot of like my, my image and put like a dumpster fire, you know, in my thought bubble or something like, you know, it was, it was, I was like, wow, this is what's out there, you know? And so I left Twitter actually because of that. And, yeah. uh, and so I'm a bit hesitant. MSNBC picked it up and then shared yeah. it, republished it. And then it was right. like, the masses got it. And it was, it was quite like, I got physically sick after it because of the amount of intense criticism that actually came my way. And I would just say that something triggered in the collective in the shadow that I was sort of illuminating you know mm. through my piece on this that it was um it was very difficult to navigate you know so that's what i'm saying it's like even though i'm quote proud of the writing and it was the most read i'm also very nervous about more people reading it <laughs> well right? so my my audience is is 100 percent like cool tolerant intelligent <laughs> here i am pandering to you people um actually it, it's because i i think i've offended everyone who's offend offendable by now perfect you know, so yeah. so there's none of Let's that. Let's do it. <laughs> there's no there's no one listening who doesn't want to be listening and who isn't open to you know sincerity and authenticity mm. and uh, oh. the truth. It doesn't mean everyone's going to agree with whatever you've written, but absolutely, I don't yeah, think yeah. you're going to get any dumpster fire uh, memes <laughs> sent your way. <laughs> well, this this I'll just say this up front then, and again, I appreciate this is that um, I, I what I feel the most um, kind of clear. Uh, what's the word like not quite able to compute within the mind of the masses was they couldn't tell who the bad guy was. Right. Right. In the sense that I, cause I, I kind of was like willing to just in like reveal my internal realm, especially during that time. And I didn't try to make myself look good. Right. It wasn't like, you know, I'm this heroically, you know, noble figure. I was like kind of honest about what was going on for me my judgments. And I think that's part of the problem in a culture where the nuance of, you know, in relationship, it's, it's whenever somebody says, you know, somebody did something bad, you know, in relationship or they cheated or they betrayed or they're, you know, it's very quick, of course, people to say typically, you know, oh, they're the awful person and get rid of them, break up. Um, you know, this kind of one-sidedness typically, you know, the, yeah. the ruptures create these abyss uh, between, you know, who's on whose side. And so I find like that was really a piece. It's like, because I don't name the bad guy in a way, like it's not her fault in a way. It's not my fault in a way there's consequence there's certainly consequence that accrued because of decisions made, but I find like that's hard to step outside of that. Well, who's the bad guy, right? And uh, and and I don't know. I just wanted to say that up front. Yeah, well, that's something I talk about a lot on this podcast the 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 importance of being able to end a relationship without demonizing um, mm. yourself or or the other, and mm -hmm. you know that to me that's I think people in Western culture particularly I, I, maybe this is a human universal i'm not sure but i think that we um obscure our grief with anger 
mm-hmm. know, and the end of a relationship or the the transitional period of a relationship is so full of grief. It's so fucking painful and sad and you know makes you feel so helpless and vulnerable it's and and this person you love is suffering you know which in many cases is worse than our own suffering um that i think it's this sort of instinctive reaction to find anger and Mm -hmm. cover it all up with anger anger is like a like a sauce you put on shitty food to make it palatable. You know, it's the cheese <laughs> sauce of the emotions. Mm. I think. Oh, the sriracha. <laughs> <laughs> sriracha. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it mm. bites, right. I, I guess hot mm. sauce is a good, a better metaphor. Um, but yeah. I, the, and that's such a lost opportunity because, you know, the, we're all yearning for community. We're all yearning for connection and yet we, you know, when the relationship doesn't work out the way we hoped, we sever all ties to this person who knows us so well, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and who who should be family forever. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'd, I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to just eliminate that, that one thing I am proud of is that uh, we, my, my former wife, yeah, we did craft a closing ceremony. Uh, which mm-hmm. at the time I was, you know, maybe it's more, rel- more, more common now, you know, certainly at the time it wasn't. This is over a, yeah, just a decade ago. And I'm steeped as well in a teacher, Stephen Jenkinson, who some some folks may know now. And yeah, I spent 10 years with him. And that certainly had a way with how I understood grief and death and endings. <laughs> yeah. And he's very clear. He says, grief is a skill. It's not an emotion, right? As in, you know, there's sadness is an emotion and you know, anger is an emotion. But a grief is, a, is an actual, if you, if you conceive of it as a thing that is done and a skill, then it's just not so much an internal event. It's like what you do with that, right? And uh, and so we crafted a closing ritual, which was quite simple in a way, but very beautiful. Like we ended up creating a, like a shared altar of many of the items of our relationship. And, you know, we ended up, uh, this kind of came emergently, you know, just from the initial impulse, but we ended up reading our vows back to each other that we had said at the at the altar, which, you know, try to keep a, I mean, not, don't try to keep it together in that. That didn't happen. It was yeah, a wreck, a wreck on both sides. But we also rewrote vows for the next chapter of mm. who might we be to each other, not mm. being married people, right? And right. Uh, and we surrendered our rings back to each other, you know, and there was more to it, but it was it was very deep and simple and profound. And yet at the same time, it was such a contrast to me you know, ultimately the essay ends, uh, not to give away the punchline, um, it's, there's quite a twist in there, but the, you know, like many marriages, they finally quote end with the dotted line signature, you know, signing the paper, you know, saying, okay, you're officially now divorced. And it, would, it wasn't lost on me that, you know, the beginning of this celebrate celebratory moment was family and friends there, you know, the whole, the whole thing, lots of beautiful words and, and a party. And, and yet the ending of the thing was, a poorly lit office, you know, in the suburbs outside Vancouver with, you know, some dude we've never met sign here, please. Okay. Thank you. You know, it just shows how uh, just intolerant and unskillful that we happen to be primarily at endings. You know, we're pretty good at the startings, but awful at endings. Right. And just how that's the other side of the story that I think there's so many relationships to maintain a kind of vitriolic, uh, you know, animosity because they actually didn't know how to close it well and mm. properly grieve. Yeah. That reminds me, uh, grief is a skill that that sentence reminds me of the, the famous quote from, uh, how do you pronounce it? Tich Nhat Khan or something? Oh, Tich Nhat Hanh. Tich Nhat When we love without knowing how to love, we damage the person we love. I'm paraphrasing, but something along those lines. Um, you know, the, the importance of knowing how to love, because if you don't know how you end up destroying or, or damaging the person you're projecting all this confused bullshit onto, um, Steven Jenkinson was on this podcast okay. about five years ago. And it was, uh, it was interesting how it went down, um, you know, a bunch of people who listen to this podcast had written to me and said, you should really get Stephen Jenkinson on. He's he's a really interesting guy. And, you know, I talk about 
death a lot on this podcast and mm. in fact the the song that closes almost every episode is called smoke alarm and and the lyrics basically are um again paraphrasing but it's is basically like go ahead live your life everyone mm. you've ever known is headed for a headstone i don't want to give the end away but you're going to die one day right it's this reminder mm. of like hey this mm-hmm. is this is a limited time only kind of deal um Anyway, so he and I went back and forth for a couple of years trying to schedule, uh, you know, when we would both be in the same place at the same time, because I didn't want to do a Zoom mm-hmm. thing. This was pre-COVID when the technology wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. And um, and it just like, you know, he was somebody I wanted to meet in person. Anyway, turned out he gets in touch with me. He's like, I'm going to be in LA on, you know, November 17th and 18th. I have time on the morning of the 18th. Um, so I can come to your place in Topanga. And he was with someone else. They were doing a tour, like a musical mm-hmm. tour. Anyway, turns out my dad dies, uh, a few wow. weeks before that. And his memorial service is scheduled for the 18th at two o'clock. And Stephen's wow. coming to my apartment the 18th at 11 o'clock. And so I'm like wow. hours from going to my dad's memorial service. And I'm sitting there talking with Stephen Jenkinson about death and grieving. And yeah, wow. that was, it was an interesting convergence there. Wow. So wow. Uh, yeah, Stephen Jenkinson, how's he doing? Uh, well, you know, he, he tours like Matt. I mean, I think they're on a hiatus right now, but uh mm-hmm. You know, I would just say for, because I knew him pre-tour, like pre-this side of him, right? This uh, sort of uh, rock show uh, collaboration with Gregory Hoskins, right? That's the other fellow. Right. And I actually, though, went on the road with them for the first few months, the very first tour, because I was also, you know, I was chronicling my time with Steven as well in general, because I've released a few short films. And then uh, that this this collaboration sprouted and, you know, ultimately it actually became a short film, which I produced called Lost Nation Road which uh, I highly recommend, you know, for your listeners to check out. It's a great kind of uh, sense of what the tour is and what what the intent is. And, you know, you and you quoted that song, you know, you said at the end of your podcast and, you know, one of the very first tours uh, where Stephen and Gregory were on Salt Spring Island, actually, and we recorded it for the film. But the the like finale crescendo of the show is actually him like selling to people like, and you're going to die and you're going to die. And it's this like total rock. It's a rock and roll moment. And people are like screaming and, you know, so it was so amazing to see that convergence, right? Of those two things and how yeah. they weren't exclusive, you know, love of life and the recognition of dying. Of course, they're, they're kin. They're complementary. You know? Yeah. And then you said something earlier too, which I do think is a beautiful segue to Tamara, which is, um, you know, I think you said paraphrasing Thich Nhat Hanh, but the, if you don't know how to love, you end up damaging that who you love. And I think that that really is the story of uh, Tamara in that I was invited into what they called a global love school, right? Which is essentially their deepest immersive experience in the research around love and sexuality and partnership and politics and, and all of that stuff that that was the school they'd set up um, a few years prior at this point to bring in activists and media makers and peace workers and folks to come and really, you know, steep in that. And that's one of the main things I initially learned, which is love has to be learned. Like that, that in itself is in many ways a kind of completely counterintuitive to a sense of it just, you know, you fall in love or it just kind of happens or that you just inherently know how to do it. Or of course it's, you know, uh, baloney, like that there is a skillfulness of love uh, to truly, um, I mean, understand oneself and what you're bringing to the relationship, you know, and and how to do that and etiquette and courtship. And, you know, I'm thinking now, of course, of times when perhaps there was lots of, uh, you know, like medieval, you know, bardic schooling around this. And, you know, I've studied this stuff now and that oftentimes that, that uh, just as maybe someone might spend two years in a monastery, you know, to like work on their spiritual practice and mindfulness that, you know, you would go into a sort of school of courtly love and like these things would need to be learned because in some sense, without that mentorship and guidance and teaching, of course, these, the energies that get unleashed, especially in a culture where there's so much attachment trauma and, you know, uh, uh, longing and projection and desire and addiction and all those things get loaded on. And we call that love, of course, but 
it, most of it is not it. Most of it is just entanglement and projections and, uh, and all the rest. So just from that alone, Oh, that love can be learned. And, and in some sense must be learned in order to honor that, which you love, uh, and to, in some sense, unlock the highest possible, um, outcome, you know, from, from partnership and from love and from community. That was a real, uh, reorganization for me. And you went into this right out of your failed marriage? It was about uh, two years after. Uh, as in, we separated in 2013, and then I first went to Tamara in 2015. And uh, I met with another filmmaker, John Wolfstone, again, which was a wild kind of tale. But uh, he he was traveling like through refugee camps and like helping out. You know, I think he was doing sacred clowning or something with supporting kids and stuff. And he ended up seeing these essays about Tamara through some of the other peace workers there and was drawn there. And then they told him, uh, you know, he was a media maker too, right? And they're like, hey, there's this guy in Canada, you know, trying to get him out, Ian. And he ended up seeing a video of Stephen Jenkinson I'd made. So he came to Canada and I was there still from filming. And, you know, all of a sudden he's like, well, we got to make a film about Tamara. And I was like, okay, I guess that's happening. Mm. So we did it. Yeah, we did a Kickstarter. We raised 20K and then headed to the Love School in 2015. And I thought it would be a short film, right? It was like good 10 minutes, maybe, you know, just something but not bite size. We got right. there. It's like, oh no, this is going to be a much longer something. Yeah, yeah. What is it? Close. It's pushing ninety minutes, right? It's a feature. Yeah, it's a feature of 70, 75, 80 minutes. Yeah, right. Goes by real fast. We showed it uh, at our um, retreat in Montana last year. Uh, that was uh, really interesting. Um, led to some fantastic conversations afterwards. So what did you learn in the love school? How, how when you look back yeah. on that, were there things that really kind of blew your mind and that you realized you'd been mm -hmm. doing wrong up until then? <laughs> oh yeah. Everything. No, I, uh, I ended up going to, so four love schools over five years. So in total, and some, sometimes we would stay for a few more extra weeks. So in that sense, you know, I was able to steep a bit more in the context and the whole ecosystem of Tamara, because that's a pretty important distinction. Because a lot of people, you know, even now, of course, in the last uh, decade, people have now much more heard of it, I think, right? Back then it was, you know, what, uh, Tamara? But now a fair amount of people, I think, know of them. And a lot of them understand them or, or kind of sense that they're a free love community, right? Which in many ways they are, but they call it love free from fear. Right. And the distinction is pretty important because, you know, if unless you, you know, if you try to apply the lens of like North American polyamory, uh, it just doesn't quite, it doesn't translate at all to what they're doing there with their cultural frame, because one, they're a place, like their actual place with people committed and deeply committed to a, a kind of political and uh, ecological social response to a future beyond war. Like that's, that in itself uh, as a, as an anchor, I think is a really important to name because it's not about people just getting their needs met, you know, in a way that you know, uh, uh, oftentimes can play itself in this culture where individuals are sort of maximize their own self-interest with, you know, as many connections or whatever it is. There, it's just a very different thing there when people are committed with each other and they're committed to each other's healing in a way, right? Like one one of the fellows there said to us, Johannes, um, that, you know, you kind of, you're investing in the highest of each other. And so in that sense, um, they have a social field Build of, of built of committed people that are all kind of in this together with each other. And then they have, of course, social technologies like Forum, which you saw in the film, uh, as a way of moving energy, shadow, you know, bring shadow to the surface, building trust, revelation. Uh, they have deep solidarity between men and women within there as well. And there's many examples I can give of essentially like what that feels like in terms of the distinction between the kind of atomized uh, nuclear, you know, system we have over here, and then a, a solid social field of people committed and trust. And I'd say that one of the overall, just like again, ahas really was that the the way and even the like the ways we talk about relationships and the challenge of relationships over here and say in the modern West, whether you're talking about monogamy, polyamory, you know, what I started to understand is quoting Stephen Jenkinson again. He wasn't talking about polyamory, but, but what he said was any reaction to something creates a twin not an alternative see that any reaction to something creates a twin and not an alternative and i saw that immediately with uh how 
monogamy and polyamory are often pitted as, uh, you know, one is better than the other or sort of, you know, this sort of, you could be this or you could be that. And for me, what Tamara taught me was they're both existing, uh, those dynamics, they're all playing themselves out. What you could say is in the crater of the loss of village, right? And so mm-hmm. as soon as you're able to see that and step back and be like, oh, that's what we can't see when you're too close to the the wound in a way. Right. right. The 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 absence, the goneness. Right. And I, so I started to see, you know, the metaphor. I, a friend worked at a, a what do you call it? Like a observatory at one point. This is years ago. One of my first films. And we got to learn about black holes and, you know, the stars. And I, I think it's still true, but it's uh, basically that they can't tell uh, where a black hole is. You know, scientists, you know, the astronomers, they're looking up at the sky. They, you don't see a black hole. But what you do see is how light bends around it. Mm hmm. Right. And so what I started to see was, oh, it, we can't see the absence of village, but you can see how everything spirals around that goneness without knowing that it's gone. Right. And so, again, these were like deep reconfiguring moments for me. It kind of changed how I saw everything. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, as, as you can imagine, um, I get a lot of people encouraging me you know book agents or or mm. readers or listeners or whatever saying you know you should write a book on relationships like how to do non-monogamy right mm. um and the thing i i keep coming up against on the one hand i agree there's there's a, a need there's an audience there's as as you said earlier you were um sort of referring to society where we're we don't know what love is and young men don't have the kind of you know troubadour schools or you know the gallant knights you know teaching them how to treat a woman how to be a gentleman how to harness those primal kind of energies that all young men are dealing with and not uh let them curdle into misogyny or shame or or whatever there, there's a huge need for this. And, you know, the, the absence of fathers, um, you know, mm-hmm. is is a huge issue. But on the other hand, what I keep running into is there's no fucking formula. There's mm-hmm. no, you know, five steps. There's no, there's no, you know, polygamy or, or, or uh, you know, um, non-monogamy in this form or that form or the other form is better than this or that or there it's not formulaic it it's something i feel like everyone has to learn themselves and i don't i can't even imagine how to teach it through a book mm-hmm. where you're not sitting there eye to eye with the person that you're talking to right where you can adapt mm-hmm. and maybe this this is the kind of stuff you talk about on your podcast uh, a lot i guess how do you mm-hmm. how do you square those things mm-hmm. well this so this is interesting because what comes to me is um, what, what is culture? Right. And because for me, I hear that's kind of what's being said without it being directly said. Um, because in the absence of understanding or maybe having a shared understanding of what culture is, I think we have a kind of, um, a sense there's just like strategies. Right. Um, and so, and I, I see maybe that there's, it's possible to write a book of strategies, uh, in a sense, and those can be, yeah, those can be useful certainly. But then the question is like, what's the soil in which this, uh, is planted and rooted, and that's different kind of work. And because... and also, what fruit will it bear? Right, yeah. like Neil, Neil Strauss is a friend of mine, and and uh-huh. I, I've spent a a lot of time with Neil. He was one of the first guests I ever had on this podcast. I think okay, he was like within the first five guests. Um, and I like Neil a lot, but I feel like the game is all about tricking a woman to go to bed with you, but it's nothing about then what do you do? You know, like, like you, you, you've tricked her. That's a horrible way to start a relationship. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah. uh, And I remember you, you did the piece, uh, the episode on David Data's book too, right? Again, the way of the superior man or inferior man. And, and, you know, I I can, and I just actually recently saw a piece on Andrew Tate, of course, as well, who's going to a big name now. And, and he's sort of, again, so we're talking now specifically around men and the challenges that men have. And I, I think that the the deeper question that I've, uh, that Tamara really taught me actually, and this again, more related to masculinity is one, 
the first time that I was in an intergenerational circle of men was Tamara as part mm. of love school. Really? Uh, this is back in 2015. Yeah. And I say that not, not in the sense of maybe like a, I don't know, bridal party at a wedding or something. Maybe that's a moment, you know, that's not quite what I mean, but I mean like a ritual space of authentic connection where the man is part of love school spent 24 hours on their own and the women did the same, you know, in their space. And that clued something in me. One, I was really struck by how a lot of my kind of unconscious uh, programming around the presence of women was gone, right? Like uh, there, I mean, again, I spent time on soccer teams, you know, as youth and that kind of stuff. So it wasn't quite, it's not the same, but there's something else when suddenly I could be in an authentic space, particularly with older men who I respected and, and grew to respect even more. And we were just circling around these issues. What does it mean to be a good man? What does it mean to be in service to the feminine? You know, all this kind of stuff. And it awoke in me a sense of, oh, uh, without the presence of women, there's a whole uh, kind of jostling hier hierarchical programming of uh, like, you know, approach or evaluation or all these things that just relaxed when I was suddenly with a group of men because it, it doesn't need to be there, right? And so that revealed to me, I'm like, oh, there's so much cognitive, um, you know, subtle and overt manipulation kind of happening in, in when women are there. And and it's kind of this um, insecurity, right, that shows up, this insecurity of like, where am I in the hierarchy with other men or am I slightly competitive with him and all this stuff. And so I say this because, again, Tamara really showed me uh, what solidarity looks like for men to find a kind of deeper sense of trust and authenticity where I didn't have to other them, right? And all of a sudden it, was, it wasn't about envy, it wasn't about jealousy or you know, perception of betterness. It was like, I could admire the qualities that they had, right? And say, wow, that's, you know, that's a really fit man, you know? Wow, maybe he inspires me to be more fit. Or, wow, you know, his eloquence is astounding. I'd love to you know, maybe uh, learn from him. Or... So there was a different approach to that. And I say, because the, the, almost like the substrata of, relationships and um you know of course dating now and all this stuff we it's still existing again in the absence of this contextual soil and so in some ways a lot of the behaviors that we see like you're saying uh, uh like manipulation to kind of win women right or, or entice them into sex uh, as a kind of value you know achievement you know the notch on the belt or you know whatever all that kind of classic stuff um it's it makes sense when you're in a status hierarchy right? For uh, a kind of diminished pool of possibility. And this is what the article was saying. It was saying with dating apps now, women are able to be intensely more choosy, right? And kind of filter out uh, all the men who may have been, you know, call it five out of tens or something or, or lower. And like, now they don't even need to engage with them at all because they can kind of filter for the top, you know, 10% or something. And so the calamity, of course, there is now we have uh, a massive amount of men who are in, don't know how to make contact with women, if we're talking about heterosexual men and, and develop in partnership, but then, of course, grow resentful because they feel shut out of, uh, of that whole you know, game, you could say, because it is a game and a system where there is winners and losers, right? Like there is actually a sense of status and hierarchy and achievement and um, better than and so how do we, in a way, step out of that uh, formulation? Now, for me, what I've tried to focus on for men is on the one hand, you first have to come to recognize and, and in a sense, tap the feminine force of the lover within you. Like as in to decouple it, as in women own and control this resource, right? The feminine, we call it. Uh, and, and then therefore, it's like we have to get it from them. Right. And so what I've tried to do, especially over the last couple of years in immersion retreats and things with a fellow collaborator, we tried to, again, uh, establish this rerouting of a kind of a tap route to the mass or to the feminine well within. And some might say, you know, this is the feminization of men or, you know, the men being feminized. And I get that sense. And that's not to surrender a fierce masculinity, of course. Right. But if we have a culture and a generations, which I do believe do not know how to access that realm, that sense of, you know, wellspring of nourishment uh, within themselves, they will inherently predate women to get it, right? And then, of course, that's what we see on mass with Me Too. Me Too, to me, it was a collective hell no from women, quote, the feminine, right, to say no more trespass, no more consumptive, you know, predatory behavior, like we're done with that. And of course, Harvey Weinstein, 
is the sort of pinnacle, almost archetypal figure of this, uh, you know, older man who sort of spent so long predating on the women. Uh, I would say, I don't know his own story, but I would say probably because, again, there's no initiatory pathways that he might have lived to reorient him to this own taproot. And I would just call it to lover earth, right? If we talk about uh, rites of passage and stuff, which we could pivot that direction, to me, this is one of the core functions of rites of passage is actually to reorient uh, the egoic structures of a man towards a much bigger relationship with, call it life itself. But again, there's big, big topics that we could go down, uh, but I'm curious over to you. Yeah, I, I think those are those are crucially important issues. And I I find myself echoing a lot of what you said when I'm speaking with young men, because like you, I think the f- first step I point them to is, you know, and I won't say this as poetically as you did, but the first step is get your own shit together. Don't look for a woman to make you complete. You mm-hmm. need to be complete. And then women will come to you, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you need to be you need to create an energy field around you of safety and respect and kindness and competence. That's what attracts women. You're not going to go out half baked and find a woman to complete you. That'll never work. If you do, you'll find a woman who's, you know, just got complimentary issues to yours. (laughs) And so it's not going to be a a growth opportunity (laughs) for either one of you. Um, Your podcast, by the way, is called The Mythic Masculine. Is that right? That's right. Okay, good. Just want to make sure people know where to Mm -hmm. find you. There will be a link, obviously, in the show notes as well. Um, Yeah, and and the other thing that came to mind uh, was a conversation I had on Joe Rogan's podcast one time uh, where we were talking about masculinity. And, um, yeah, talking with Joe Rogan about masculinity is funny. Mm -hmm. It's like talking about, you know, money with Elon Musk or something. It's Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, you're Mr. Masculine. But what I was, what I said to him was, I, I think that people have, a lot of people have a very partial view of what masculinity means. And in my experience, you know, if you define masculinity as, um, a willingness to sacrifice yourself for people you love, which I think is a, you know, goes back to hunter gatherer days, you know, who, who went out Mm -hmm. when the village gets attacked, who ran out with the spears and the bows and arrows, the men, right. The women stayed and protected the children. Then the men went out and faced the fucking, you know, saber tooth tiger or, you know, whatever the danger was. Uh, I think that's a central thing. Um, the ability to, or or the 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 capacity to say, I am what I am. I don't care what the repercussions are. I feel like there's something very deeply masculine about that. And the mm. the men I know who have done that um, in the most profound way are gay, mm. right? So. The point I was making to Joe is, look, yeah, sure, be Mr. Manly, muscle, you know, UFC fighter, blah, blah, blah. That's great. But don't forget gay dudes who have stood up and said, sorry, dad, I know this might mean I'll get kicked out of the family. This might mean you won't love me anymore. This might mean I'll lose all my friends. This might mean I'll get beat up. This might mean, you know the end of my life in many ways, but I can't lie anymore. That's Mm. incredibly masculine. And in my own experience, I found I, I came, there was a time in my early thirties when I kind of came to a realization about myself and, um, you know, the realization was that I'm not monogamous. Like I can't, Mm. I just can't do that. Like every time I'm in a monogamous relationship with a woman, I end up resenting her and it's not her. It's not, you know, it's not her fault. She's one woman. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the way it works. And I, I had this kind of coming out experience where I realized like, Oh shit, I, I need to be honest about this. And that probably means no woman's ever going to want to 
have a truly intimate relationship with me because I'm from the get-go saying I'm not available for, you know, what mm -hmm. I assume women want. Um, and what I found totally pivoted my life because what I found was that even the women who were unhappy about the content of what I was saying admired the, the honesty and the self-actualization behind it. And many women just straight up said, like, I've always known this about men, but you're the first man who's ever said it to me. Like, mm. good on you, you know? Like, and and what I realized is, and, and this isn't universal, of course, but so many women, um, what they want is truth. Mm. What that truth happens to be is a, is a secondary consideration. The first consideration is, is this guy being honest with me? Can I trust this guy? Right. And I feel like that reshuffled my understanding of male female interaction in a profound way. Mm. Uh, because I, I don't know that men are the same. I don't know that men have that um, courage to say, I'd rather know the truth uh, about your feelings. Uh, I, I think a lot of men would be like, no, nah, I don't want to hear about. You know, mm. I don't want to hear about things that are going to make me uncomfortable, especially around sexuality. Mm. Now, would you just to clarify, you're saying men you find would not want a partner to tell them what they honestly you're saying? Or I just want to make sure I got that. Yeah, point. yeah. I, I, within the relationship configuration. I And maybe that's because women are more vulnerable um, generally, uh, at least physically. And I feel like. Like. You know, women grow up, most women grow up with uh, availability of sexual partners not being an issue, right? Like if a woman wants to get laid, for most women, it's that's not a big ask. Whereas, you know, your 16, 17, 18-year-old boy is like, holy, you know, it's such a scarce commodity and they're willing to do so many humiliating, ridiculous things to try to impress girls. So I feel like there's this uh, disconnect between um, most women's experience and most men's experience through those, mm. you know, hormonal storms of, of our early adulthood. Well, there's a few threads there. I mean, one, I hear you saying that maybe perhaps like courage to face consequence could be seen as a, a maybe a masculine virtue. Um, and again, maybe also to say, I know in our conversation, we, I think shared that, you know, everyone has masculine and feminine characteristics sure. within this map, but that there's something around, um, you know, again, I, I shared a, something on Facebook a little while ago around masculine and feminine, uh, accountability, I think it was, or like dis responsibility in some sense. And I said, discipline, a masculine discipline is I'm going to, I said, I was going to do something and I did it, but, uh, feminine discipline is actually well, I said it was, but I don't feel like it right now because I'm, you know, I'm attuning to my body or I'm attuning to my emotional state. And actually, that's you know, not true anymore. You know, so uh, I'm actually in integrity with my feminine to say, you know, actually, I don't want to do that right now. Right. So mm -hmm. and, and with one looking at the other, the man, the masculine side could say, well, that's totally waffly and like ridiculous. Like what? You know, but the other could say, well, that's totally rigid and overly, you know, attached to, you know, just doing it because you said you would. And then, you know, some interesting conversation ensued, right? Some people say, why is that gendered? And, you know, of course, that, all that stuff. But I just think there is something interesting when you maybe say, you know, for, for a man to stand in in truth or to stand for something um, and then willing to bear the consequence, I mean, that's a powerful thing, right? Yeah. Uh, a powerful thing, especially in a time when if every, everything kind of collapses into relativity and subjectivity and all the rest, it becomes... You know, you don't, it's hard to know where you are. And I find that's something I hear sometimes for women too. be like, I just don't know where I am with this man. Like I need him to just give me orientation. And then, you know, from there I can decide. And uh, so that's one thing. Now, the other thing around sexuality, which I would say your book, actually, uh, you know, the sex at dawn was one of those real like uh, shifting uh, moments when you talked about the, the uh, like the sexual capacity of a woman. 
right? And, and you know, the whole copulatory vocalizations and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the, the shape of the penis to like pull out sperm or I don't know, all that stuff, right? People have read the book will know. And for me, I was like, oh, and I think you might kind of make the case that like women are primed for multiple sexual partners. Uh, I don't know, at the same time or just ongoingly, you know, like their, their erotic capacity and the waves of orgasm, right? They can just keep rocking, right? And men have a often a, a kind of peak, of course, moment and then, you know, complete. And then that to me um, was verified, interestingly enough, at Tamara. And I don't say this in the sense of, you know, I, I was in uh, I was in their temple of love, actually. They have a whole temple dedicated to erotic encounter in a ritual space. But what I observed and learned was that when women who arrive often have the sense of this, you know, they kind of take a little while to open and flower, right? Because the men will show up and be like, free love, let's do this, right? And, you know, kid in a candy <laughs> store kind of thing. And uh, we have a, we have an interview with Benjamin, of course, from the film, and he talks about his wife, Yanka, when they showed up. And it mm -hmm. said for, for a while, it took her to open and really say, is this okay? Like, can I really unfold the depth of my erotic being? And, and is it safe to do so? Or will I be judged, shamed, criticized, cast out, burned at the stake? Right? A lot of women, of course, carry this uh, in their DNA of like, wow, if I really, you know, reveal who I am, will I be persecuted? Right? And especially in a in a domination culture, such as the, you know, capitalist West, uh, or any capitalist modernity, where again, right, you are essentially predated on constantly. Um, uh, like you're seen as this commodity within that space, right? That, so it's no wonder all of this stuff grows up around it and a kind of romanticized idealism around, you know, being owned by a man or, you know, all this kind of stuff makes sense within a culture where it is unsafe in many ways to be not, uh, paired, you know, with the protector, but it's somewhere like Tamara, where I would call it a partnership culture, uh, with the understanding that Rian Eisler speaks of in her book *Chalice in the Blade*. But in there, it's like your your safety, you know, isn't in jeopardy if you're not paired, right? So there's no there's no idealization. You have to be pair bonded, right? And mm -hmm. from there, there's no criticism or judgment around truly exploring your sexual appetite. And what happens is, <laughs> by and large. Women go there and they're like, oh, my God, I can actually explore this. And they find their capacity is vastly, you know, uh, uh, beyond what they thought. And often the men have a, a kind of inferiority complex come up, right? Because they're like, oh, my God, I, I'll never satiate this woman, right? <laughs> and uh, I think it was Benjamin who, who spoke to me. He's the co-founder of Love School. He said something like, that's the birth of uh, a kind of camaraderie with other men, where you realize, oh, I actually need a buddy here <laughs> to help me out to really satiate this woman. And actually, there's a big relief in him of like, oh, my God, I don't have to satiate the, the a woman like fully because actually it's beyond my capacity. Um, so I just want to give these different examples, because, again, like I do think, right, when we have perceptions of what's an idealized, you know, men, men or women want security and, you know, men want to sow their oats and I mean, all that kind of stuff. It makes sense within a certain paradigm and then in a completely other paradigm, right? All these yeah. other quote, naturalistic behaviors now become possible. Yeah. Yeah. There's a parallel to that in the swinging community uh, mm -hmm. where the, the joke is that uh, before their first swingers party, uh, a man has to really work hard to convince his wife to go and then after a few hours, he has to work hard to convince her to leave. Hardy har har. That seems like a good place to, to leave off. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation and the full version of all of these conversations, please consider becoming a paying subscriber at chrisryan.substack.com. If you happen to live in a country like Iran that does not have access to credit card system, the world banking system, or North Korea, or I don't know where else, um, or you just don't have the cash, uh, drop me a line. If, if you'd like to hear this, I'll hook you up for free. This is not about squeezing anybody's last dollar. If you have some cash and you can afford it, uh, please consider supporting the podcast and uh, chipping in to cover those damned Iranians. Who knew I had all these people in Iran listening to the podcast? Welcome. Thank you, Persian people. Um, all right. I'm going to say goodbye. Carsey Blanton reminding you, you're going to die one day, motherfucker. 
<sighs> yeah, me too. All right, till next time. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation to the ground.